Hello and welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all of the masterpieces and trash pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And it's original versus remake time again, and one that I've been meaning to do for uh, since we started the podcast, actually. Yeah, and it's the conclusion, well, part of the conclusion to Nasty November. It is. And it's a surprising choice. When it comes to video nasties, you I s- thought you I was that. surprised. Yeah, I mean, you say that. <laughs> this, yeah, this is our penultimate Nasty November episode. The month where we, if you're new to this podcast, I've been discussing video nasties all month. With uh, this month, this year, we've been discussing the section three video nasties, uh, which is where today's remake falls into. We're discussing both versions of The Thing. Um, not entirely surprised because this has some of the nastiest score you'll see in any horror film ever. It's some of the most realistic looking, despite being essentially a fantasy film. Yeah, that's true. For me, I just thought the thing was maybe a little too classy for the list. I mean, it's a studio effort. John Carpenter was a well-established director you know that they were um in inconsistent oh they were with what they, they chose were. to include um but maybe the fact that this was seen as a critical and financial failure at yeah. the time may have also played into it mm. because then they had thought oh shit it's just trash um but yeah this i mean this definitely has some of the nastiest gore out of the video nasties I've seen anyway. Mm. Um, but let's start with the poll results. Um, this month, it's another knockout for um, for one film only. And the remake has won with 100% of the votes. Really? A landslide? That's actually quite surprising. Is it? Because mm. I kind of feel that most people would have watched both films. Yeah. And despite the original... Spoiler alert, being a decent film, yeah. the remake is much better. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Much more absolutely. highly regarded. But I'm sure it has a lot of fans, though, the original. Um, but yeah, we'll talk about that one first anyway. So that is The Thing from Another World from 1951. Uh, a film that Ridley Scott, John Frankenheimer, Toby Hooper, and of course John Carpenter have all cited as a key influential film in their lives. Um, do you know who else I think probably would have said that? Who? George A. Romero. Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, before uh, you start shouting at us, yes, we know it's technically a re-adaptation, um, but it's our podcast, our rules, so it's a remake today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is directed by Christian Nyby, who also made Lights, Diamond Jubilee, Hell on Devil's Island, Young Fury... Operation CIA, uh, Six Gun Law, and First to Fight. So, we have another poltergeist, Toby Hooper, Steven Spielberg situation on our hands here. Co-written and co-directed by an uncredited Howard Hawks. Of course, the infamous director, that like, John Carpenter's biggest influence, mm. who... Uh, made Rio Bravo, Scarface, Red River, El Dorado, Hatari, uh, Bringing Up Baby, His Girl Friday, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Prolific Career, goes on and on and on, many masterpieces. 
Um, it's generally believed that Howard Hawks took over direction from Nyby uh, during production, and it has always been acknowledged by Nyby that Hawks was the guide in hand. However, in an interview, James Arnus said that while Hawks spent a lot of time on the set, it was Nyby who actually directed the film, not Hawks. John Carpenter said in an interview that he actually asked Howard Hawks this question in 1971, and Hawks told him that he only gave Nyby some suggestions. Carpenter noted, however, in later life, Hawks started to claim more and more credit for directing the film, and that the completed movie has much more of Hawks' trademarks than Nyby's later work. Um, I think, because he does have producer credit as well, Howard Hawks, so yeah. his hand is definitely in the yeah. pie in some sense. Um, what I find is interesting is that this is very much a B-movie. It is. And Howard Hawks wasn't a B-movie guy, particularly in 1951. No. Um, so I feel like maybe this is the kind of poltergeist situation yes. where studios thought that this kind of film was maybe beneath Howard Hawks. Potentially. I mean, we have a poster in our film room we're looking at right now, and the big name on the poster is Howard Hawks' mm-hmm. astounding movie, yes. The Thing from Another World. With yes. Christian Nyby in very small letters underneath. Very small letters. So, yeah, I'm on... The f- I'm on the thought process that is Howard Hawks who directed this film, personally. Yeah, because by, by this time you'd have something like Sergeant York, which was a big film, mm-hmm. you know, His Girl Friday, big Cary Grant A-list stars. Yeah. Bringing Up Baby was Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. So yeah. big films. And this is a very little film with very sort of not famous actors in it. Yeah. And I completely agree that it has more of Hawks' trademarks um, in the film because not that I've seen any of Christian Nyby's other films, but it has a more serious, mature side to it um, that doesn't fit in with the other B-movies of its era. It stands out. Mm. It feels different. Not that, I mean, when you think into consideration films that I've seen by Howard Hawks of Bringing Up Baby, His Girl Friday and Gentleman Preferred Blonde, not exactly known for being a serious kind of guy. But I, I feel like a director that takes himself more seriously, like Howard Hawks, would have made something that is a slow burner and more focused on the dread and tension of it all, like this film is. Yeah, it's very, and we'll discuss it further, but it's very light on action, particularly yeah. compared to the remake. And it's quite heavy on dialogue. But I think there are zippy one-liners. There are, yeah. The fast-talking sort of comedy aspects are are light, but they are there. I've Uh very much felt it was like His Girl Friday. Yeah. Um, Almost screwball, but not not Mm. screwball in that sense. Yeah. The main screenplay uh, is by Charles Lederer, who did Perry Mason... Two episodes of the Twilight Zone, First to Fight, Operation CIA, Young Fury. Uh, also worked on Alfago, Barker, Six Gun Law, Hell on Devil's Island, and more. And it doesn't stop there. It's co-written by an uncredited Ben Hecht, who did Notorious, The Scoundrel, Scarface, Angels Over Broadway, Rope, Gone with the Wind, Cleopatra, Gilda, Spellbound, The Shop Around the Corner, and many more. 
There's some big films there. Yeah. You know, really. Again, really... uncredited, though. Uncredited. It's, I don't think it's any coincidence that the two uncredited um, writers and the uncredited director have had much bigger pictures under the belt than the other ones. The yeah. ones that have had the name out there. Yeah, I, I feel like this is sort of writers being asked partake in a yeah. movie yeah. of some sort. Who was the studio that released it? I really should It was RKO. Before. RKO. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah. I, I feel like the RKO films that we've watched that are B-movies, because RKO wasn't the biggest um, studio, was it? No. But no. I feel like a lot of the RKO B-movies we've watched have always kind of been elevated. Yeah. Um... A bit like the A24 of their day, uh, yes. to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, it's based on the story <laughs> who goes... How wanky that sounds. Uh, I'm a member of the AAA24 fan club. Of course you so are. So if you think that's wanky, then... No, I, I, the <laughs> sentence I just said sounded quite wanky. Um, can we just talk a little on Charles Lederer? Yeah. Um, I've just seen one of his films. Cock of the Air. <laughs> An opera diva sets her sights on a womanising army officer. Lovely. So that's been added to my watch list. Cock of the air. Cock of the air around here. Based on the story Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr. And although it has frequently been derided by science fiction purists for being an overly loose adaptation of the original novel, uh, it actually who's quite closely to the first six chapters of the original story. Nearly all of the borrowings from the novella that recur in the film, including the discovery of the flying saucer through the electromagnetic anomaly it makes and its accidental destruction through the use of fermite charges, the foreign of the creature, the suggestion that it reads minds and its death uh, in the electrical trap come from these first few chapters. Um, yeah, I've not read the novella. No, I've, I've not read it. But seemingly, John Carpenter's version actually does stick to it a little more. Yeah. The main premise and the main idea mm-hmm. behind the novella um, is stuck to better, not better, but more accurately yeah. in John Carpenter's version. And then that creates a completely different atmosphere to this version. Mm-hmm. This version actually does say something, but says something different in a different way. Uh-huh. It was made on a budget of $1.6 million, and I can't tell you how much it made completely, but I can tell you it made $1.95 million in US rentals. That's the only information available online. Okay. And I could also tell you that in an interview on National Public Radio's Fresh Air with uh, our favourites, Siskel and Ebert, when asked about the most scared they'd ever been at the movies, Ebert indicated that this film scared him to death, especially seeing where they incinerated the thing. And that explains so much on their opinions on later films. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming it didn't do mass well enough for us to get another thing from another planet. No. no. Another world. Well, let's talk about our first feature presentation. Happened. It's just coming at me, making a noise like I can't do it. Captain, it was awful. You couldn't see those hands and those eyes. Captain, you've got to do something about it. You've got. Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? 
baffling questions, astounding questions, that not even the world's greatest scientific minds can answer. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world as different from us as one pole from the other. If we can only communicate with it. See? What happened, Doctor? In the greenhouse I was working, I couldn't see. Yeah. Then, then a blast of cold air and I heard Olsen scream. Um, of course, it opens with a clip from Halloween 1978. Yes, for those who recognize the film, it is the film that Laurie, Tommy, and Lindsay watched on TV in Halloween 1978. Yeah. John yeah. Carpenter's little nod. <laughs> um, so we open up with the legendary title card reveal that will be repeated in the remake. Yep. So that kind of burn smoky yeah, reveal of the thing yeah um iconic so in anchorage journalist ned scott looking for a juicy story visits the officers club of the alaskan air command where he meets captain pat hendry his co-pilot lieutenant eddie dykes excuse who, me who's a friend <laughs> of scott's and flight navigator ken mac mcpherson it was 1951 grow up no, that's that's no, that's a legit that's a legit surname. Oh wow, yeah. Um, so uh, we find out in old school sort of vernacular that Scott is a newspaper man. Yes, and this this is definitely how everybody talks in this film. Oh, good. So I won't be told off doing impressions. No, no, you can do you can do your May West for everyone. Um, yeah, they talk very quickly, very old fashioned. The very queers qu- being thrown about. Very quippy, like you know, over Howard Hawks films. Like I said earlier, like um, his girl Friday. Yeah, they do when things are weird. They do describe it as queer. Yes. <laughs> uh, General Fogerty orders Hendry to fly to Polar Expedition Six at the North Pole per a request from its lead scientist, Nobel laureate Dr. Arthur Carrington. Carrington has radioed that an unusual aircraft has crashed nearby. With Scott, Corporal Barnes, Crew Chief Bob, and a pack of sled dogs, Hendry pilots a Douglas C-47 Skytrain transport aircraft to the remote outpost. Upon arrival, Scott and the airmen meet radio operator Tex, Dr. Chapman, his wife Mrs. Chapman, a man named Lee, who is one of the two cooks, and the Inuit dog handlers. Also present are scientists Voorhees, Stern, Redding, Stone, Lawrence, Wilson, Ambrose, and Carrington. And if you're thinking that's a lot of characters, it is. And yeah. a lot of them we're not really going to hear from again. No, no. <laughs> so thank you for the those. Um, when they find... Um... I'm setting a scene for everyone. <laughs> I'm setting the scene. It's it's crowded. There are people there. People don't know what's going on. I, nobody knows each other's names. Well, when they find what they're looking for... One of them says, holy cats, what a weird looking thing. He does, yeah. <laughs> so, Hendry, he has a little reminisce on a previous romance with Nikki Nicholson, who was Carrington's secretary. So, she reminds him that the last time they met, he was just like an octopus, <laughs> and she had never seen so many hands. And this is a running joke throughout. Yes. This, this is your little screwball comedy part. This is Hendry and Nikki. Um... <laughs> Apparently he's very handsy. He is. And apparently also she is capable of putting away a fair few alcoholic beverages. Yes, she is. Which would be quite endearing to some. 
Um, well, Nikki Hen- Nicholson, yes. not only one of the best names I ever heard, um, but also uh, this was her actress Margaret Sheridan's film debut after Howard Hawke signed her to a five-year deal. Mm. But her follow-on roles were less than stellar, and Hawks often lent her out to friends. An actual term from her research. Yeah. Anyway. Exploring the new medium of television. She left Hollywood in 1955 to have a family, briefly returned in 1964, resulting in two TV guest spots and an uncredited film role, and retired from acting in 1965, which is a damn shame because I thought she was great in this. Yeah, she was. Yeah, I think she would have made a, a good screwball comedy leading lady, actually. Um, I enjoy the moments that they have together. Um, yeah, so several scientists fly with the airmen to the crash site, finding a large object buried beneath the ice. As Gary said earlier, one of them says, holy cats, what a weird looking thing. Now, I think that's Hendry, because Hendry also says to Nikki, within a previous conversation, holy cats, I thought I was good. Uh, he just say holy cats a lot. I think he that, is yeah. the holy cats guy. So there we go. So as they spread out to determine the object's shape, they realise that they are standing in a circle and conclude that they have discovered a flying saucer. Holy cats. (laughs) Holy cats. Holy cats. Howard Hawks uh, asked the US Air Force for assistance in making the film. Uh, He was refused because the top brass felt that such cooperation would compromise the US government's official stance that UFOs didn't exist. Right. (laughs) So... The team attempts to melt the ice covering the saucer with thermite, but a violent reaction with the craft's metal alloy destroys it. Their Geiger counter, however, detects a frozen body buried nearby. It is excavated in a large block of ice and loaded aboard the C-47 transport. They fly out as an arctic storm closes in on their sight. Um, do you know what I love about that explosion scene? What? That we see, obviously see the explosion. Mm-hmm. It looks great. 1952 but all the humans are laying down and like ah explosion Uh the dogs with them don't even react (laughs) just like they're just like what are you all doing why are you all lying on the ground what's going on um hendry assumes command of the outpost and pending radio instructions from general fogarty denies scott permission to send out his story he also denies the scientist's demands to examine the body. And this is where the divide builds up. Yeah. So we have the military and the scientists. Yeah. And then we have Scott, who's a journalist, who's just there to be shady. Uh, he says at one point, biggest story to hit this planet and I run into this human clam. Now, I don't know what a human <laughs> clam is, but I love that line and I love the delivery. <laughs> Um, but I feel like this is what the film is about. Yeah. It's the idea that who should be in charge of this sort of thing? Is it the scientists or is it the military? Mm-hmm. Now, seemingly, the film does answer that question and it should be the military. <laughs> that's what I gathered from this. Yeah. I don't necessarily agree with it, but that's what the film mm-hmm. concludes. And we will talk about that more later. So Tex sends an update to Fogarty and the airmen settle in as the storm arrives. Nikki and Hendry continue their flirting, ending with Hendry tied to a chair. 
They kiss, and Nicky is glad that Hendry can't be as handsy as he would usually be. And she pours drinks into his mouth. Actually does, yes. Um, and uh, she informs him that he knows nothing about women. <laughs> she doesn't talk like that. <laughs> she's a bit, like... I don't know, I suppose she's a bit more... You know that um, mid-Atlantic mm-hmm. accent that you got? Like, Catherine Hepburn's very yeah. famous for it. Like, are you... British trying to be American? Are you American uh-huh. trying to be... Which one are you? So uh, a watch is posted and Barnes relieves McPherson. <laughs> excuse and, me. Uh, excuse me. He holds it, as he goes. And disturbed... <laughs> he had his hands tied too. Uh, and disturbed by the creature's appearance in the clearing ice, uh, Barnes covers it with an electric blanket, which he does not realise is plugged in. What electric blankets. Electric blankets are one of the worst things ever created. That is a powerful electric blanket, by the way. It is. It, that, that melted that ice really fucking quick. They, they're responsible for so many deaths, electric blankets. Going all the way back to 1951 in, in the film. Yeah, I... Um, <laughs> at college, I did a little bit on forensic science, and we did fire investigation as one of the modules. And we were talking about, um, what's it called? Um, when people just set on fire. Spontaneous combustion. Spontaneous combustion. And so many of the cases were put down to an electric blanket. <laughs> it's really sad, actually. I don't know why we're laughing. Does anyone even have electric... Where did I see an electric blanket? Oh, yeah, there's like 15% off at Little. Um, just in case anyone's wondering. Um... <laughs> but people do. Obviously, it's quite an old thing. I... Clearly, you shouldn't be falling asleep. No. What I would hope now is that you can put a little timer on it. You can charge say, it. Yeah, charge it or... Yeah. I mean, I've never... never Turn your fucking time. heating on. Well, it's different though, isn't it? Some people need... Well, anyway, whatever. <laughs> Let's not have a discourse on electric blankets, thank you. So, the creature awakens and makes a noise, so Barnes shoots at him. <laughs> And the thing is, I'm not being funny, but I'm sure none of us would be feeling or acting our best after being frozen for 20 million years. No. So if we're looking a little rough and a little dishevelled, don't start shooting. Yeah. And I think uh, method acting as well, because um, James Arnus um, reportedly regarded his role as so embarrassing that he didn't attend the premiere. He complained that his thing costume made him look like a giant carrot. Um, the uh, Howard Hawks tried to get insurance for the creature. Five insurance companies turned him down because the thing was to be frozen in a block of ice, hacked by axes, attacked by dogs, lit on fire, and electrocuted. And originally, they didn't even want him. They wanted it to be a shapeshifter, as in the novel. Mm. But the limited budget forced him to drop the idea and get the giant carrot instead. Um, early sketches depict a very plant-like looking creature with one of its limbs seemingly undergoing a transformation into a human hand. Um, thank God for technology advances in the 80s. But, do you know what? As someone who loves a monster guy in a suit film, I I really appreciated the way he looked in this. It's fine. Uh, you don't see him too much, no. to be fair. Um, I think if you saw him throughout the whole film, you would start to pick at things yeah. and notice how silly he looked um, but no I think he's fine I think he does a fine job um, obviously we'll talk about that more later um, 
But I think it does bring up the question, this scene of, obviously he's just woken up and somebody's shooting at him. <laughs> so is his behaviour after this point protecting himself? Yeah, maybe. Or was he always going to be hostile? Mm. I mean, that's not answered really and it wouldn't, no. it wouldn't be answered. Whereas with the novella and the remake, you kind of get the gist, it's hostile from the get-go. Yeah. Is this just a response mm-hmm. to being shot at? Yeah. So the creature, still alive, escapes into the storm and is attacked by the sled dogs. Two dogs are killed, but the creature loses most of its right forearm. The airmen recover the creature's severed arm after the attack. The scientists examine this arm, concluding that the alien is an advanced form of plant life. So Ned Scotty Scott says, Please, Doctor, I've got to ask this. It sounds like, well, just as though you're describing some form of super carrot. (laughs) Which is funny, because it does actually... A couple of times, the screenplay refers to it as a super Uh carrot. And the the guy playing him thought he looked like a carrot. (laughs) So maybe that's exactly what they were going for. We then get quite a long scene of them talking about plants mm-hmm. and it goes quite in depth and I'm not being funny it's a little boring <laughs> yeah it's a it's a little boring kind of takes away from the action it wasn't entirely necessary I can't imagine uh, Lindsay sitting down and that <laughs> this scene being in the background of Halloween it's them why talking it, yeah, about plants it does make me laugh that the kids are so desperate to watch the thing from another world in <laughs> yeah. Halloween 1978 it's a little tepid <laughs> I mean, kids back then must have had a much better attention span than now, so... I would assume what they would have used if John Carpenter wasn't a big Howard Hawks fan would be Night of a Living Dead. Even that has a lot of slow-burning moments in there that kids probably wouldn't get on with. But kids, no. No, I, no, I, I don't know. Maybe... But we're talking how many years ago? I think mm. kids had better attention spans. Like I said, yeah, before TikTok. Before Nintendo and Apple and TikTok. TikTok. Ruined everything. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Carrington is convinced of its superiority to humans and becomes intent on communicating with it. He's a proper simp for plants, isn't he? Yes. He says uh, at 12.10am, the hand became alive. The temperature of the forearm showed a 20 degree rise. Because of this rise in temperature, I believe it was able to ingest the canine blood with which it was covered. Sky says, uh, you mean you mean it lives on blood? <laughs> and then we get quite an interesting conversation um, with the Doctor again and Hendry and Scotty. So uh, the Doctor says, Captain, when you find what you're looking for, remember it's a stranger in a strange land. The only crimes involved were those committed against it. It awoke from a block of ice, was attacked by dogs, shot by frightened man... All I want is a chance to communicate with it. And Henry says, Doctor, you can do anything you want with it, provided it's locked up in a safe place. And then Scotty says, Captain, we catch up with our pal. Give me a chance to get a picture before somebody makes a salad of them, eh? <laughs> so you, you, you're getting, actually, you're kind of getting a three-way, mm-hmm. um, excuse me, <laughs> of the sort of themes at play mm-hmm. here. So, science wants to investigate and learn, yeah, and is aware of the fact that 
you know, it could mm-hmm. be hostile as a response to hostility. Hendry, as the military, just wants to make sure everyone's safe. Mm-hmm. And Scotty, as the newspaper man, yeah. wants to get his share of the prize money uh-huh. for the scoop. So the airmen begin a search, which leads to the outpost greenhouse. Carrington stays behind with Voorhees, Stern and Lawrence, having noticed evidence of alien activity. They discover a third sled dog hidden away, which has had all of its blood drained. And, um, yeah, I'm a bit sad. It's a bit sad. I hate when the dog's killed. I mean, yeah, these films aren't for you, then. It's not quite the double bill, (laughs) if I don't like to see dogs in peril. But yeah, this poor dog just flops Uh out. Yeah. Um, Carrington and the scientists post a secret watch of their own, hoping to encounter the alien before the airmen find it. And um, again, you know, this is a really interesting aspect of the film for me. You know, like, how would slash should we react to aliens? Mm -hmm. You know, Carrington, in doing this, is actually putting people in danger. Yeah. The officer who shot at the, um, the thing... Is also putting people's lives in yeah. danger. You know, how should we react? Do we get mm-hmm. Karen Carpenter to sing for these aliens? Um, I'm sure we'll never know. So the next morning, the airmen continue their search. Tex informs them that Fogarty is aware of their discovery and demands further information, now prevented by the fierce storm. Stern- yes. yes. Honey, you got a big it's- storm coming. Stern appears badly injured and tells the group that the creature has killed two scientists. When the airmen investigate, the alien attacks them and they manage to barricade it inside the greenhouse. And this is the big reveal. The big reveal. This is the carrot man. Yeah. Yeah. Up close and personal. So Hendry confronts Carrington and orders him to remain in his lab and quarters. Um, He says, Dr. Carrington... We just learned you found a dog in there, bled white by our visitor. You didn't report it. Why? He says, uh, I didn't consider it necessary. And Henry says, but it was necessary to leave two of your friends in there to be killed. Carrington says, I posted them as guard. I was in there myself. And Henry says, Dr. Stern was right. I looked through that door. They're hanging in there upside down, like in a slaughterhouse. I wish you'd seen it. I wish, kind of wish we'd seen it as well. I, yeah, I find, and it's something that you'll hear me repeat later on. I find a lot of the scares in this film come from descriptions from the characters, mm. which I think is a very good sign of good writing. Um, but it's 1951 and it's 1951. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Carrington, obsessed with the alien, shows Nicholson and the other scientists his experiment. Using seeds taken from the severed arm, he has been growing small alien plants by feeding them from the blood plasma supply at the base. Hendry finds the plasma missing when it is needed to treat Stern, which leads him to Carrington. Um, he also, he asks Nikki, who should be reluctant to tell him, but isn't. So she's dealing with a moral dilemma. So she's kind of stuck between the two, mm-hmm. the, the military and yeah. the science. You know, she, she kind of has investment in both. Uh-huh. Um, she is a woman, though. Yeah. So this has taken no further. Uh-huh. And yeah. It's for me a lost opportunity in in regards to the film. It would have been nice to have heard her thoughts on what was right yes. or wrong. Yeah. 
So Fogarty transmits orders to keep the creature alive, but it escapes from the greenhouse and attacks the airmen in their quarters. They douse it with buckets of kerosene and set it aflame, forcing it to retreat into the storm. And this is the iconic scene. This is an amazing visual. Yeah. Like, really well done. For 1952, Mm -hmm. this looks absolutely amazing. Yeah, this is the best scene in the film. Yeah, and that stunt work... Again, yeah. for 1952, uh-huh. is, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all Nikki's idea. Yeah. And uh, when the uh, it's relayed to Hendry, she doesn't get the credit. Of course not. You know, uh, Scotty says, here's the $64 question. What do you do with a vegetable? Nikki says, boil it. Scotty says, what did you say? Nikki says, boil it, bake it, stew it, fry it. Yeah. Which um, is a lesser known... After regrouping, they realise that their building's temperature is falling rapidly. Again, noticed by Nikki first. And the furnaces have stopped working, being sabotaged by the alien. They retreat to the... This should have been how Jason X went. (laughs) How good would that have been? Yeah. Yeah. Should have been on like a frozen planet. Anyway, they retreat... You think they had the budget for that? Okay. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's because I always I always get confused the way that Jason always and it's a big part of the game as well always knows to switch off all the electrics and everything. Oh, he always he's does. Very uh, economically aware. Yeah. Economically, well, both really. Yeah. Uh, both and ecologically. Yeah. You like saving a bit of money. It's true. Uh, they retreat to the station's generator room to keep warm and rig an electrical fly trap. The alien continues to stalk them, but at the last moment, Carrington attempts to communicate, pleading with the creature. He says, I'm your friend. I have no weapons. I'm your friend. You're wiser than I. You must understand what I'm trying to tell you. Don't go farther. They'll kill you. They think you'll harm us, but I want to know you to help you believe that. You're wiser than anything on earth. Use that intelligence. Look and know what I'm telling you. I'm not your enemy. I'm a scientist who's trying. Oh, oh my God. For a second then, I thought you were reciting something the creature said. I thought, what the fuck are no, you on? No, like, Carrington. <laughs> oh my God. I was like, what did I miss? So this is him being a simp for the... Uh, I thought, the thought that was the thing talking. <laughs> Um, no, um, I think, I think that's interesting. And then obviously he gets a smack to the head mm. for his troubles. Um, and he, the thing knocks Carrington aside and he walks into the trap and is electrocuted. And, uh, on Hendry's order, it is reduced to a pile of ash. And then Hendry says, uh, you can get a picture now, Scotty. Um, so yeah, I'm not, what I'm thinking is... The idea that the thing couldn't be reasoned with, that science wasn't necessarily the answer, mm-hmm. and the only answer to something that's hostile is hostility. Yeah. Um, which makes sense mm-hmm. in 1952 America. Um, obviously, Cold War, post-World War Two, all of that comes into play. Um, so I find that interesting, the and it, it's something that um, 
is dealt with a lot in cinema, mm. actually. Yeah. Um, and from different sides and different perspectives, science versus the military, you know. Why is it the military that's involved in um, the these UFOs or not UFOs? You know, mm-hmm. why, why is... Is it Area 51? That's what yeah. Called, yeah. Why is Area 51 a military base? You mm-hmm. know? Uh, I think it's very interesting. So uh, when the weather clears, Scotty is finally able to file his story of a lifetime by radio to a room full of reporters in Anchorage. He ends his broadcast with a warning. And I think this also mm-hmm. typifies what I've been saying. You know, tell the world, tell this to everybody, wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. Keep looking. Keep watching the skies. For all of his speech, he never once mentioned fucking Nikki. No. Like, he gave shout-outs to all his boys. Uh-huh. But Nikki saved the day, and she didn't get a single mention. Exactly. You know, women just weren't regarded in the fight against communists. I mean, aliens from outer space. True. Um, but yeah, that's the thing from another world. It is. And when we first watched this, I was not the biggest fan. I thought it was a bit basic and just didn't do enough for me. But this time, though, you know, analysing it for the podcast, I appreciated it a lot more. I I really, really enjoyed it this time. And the first time I wasn't expecting such a slow burn, but this time I appreciated the slow burn. I think it added to it. Um, yeah, we don't need conversations going off about 10 minutes about plants. Um, but, you know... Yeah, I think it's a decent film. Yeah, I think I when I first watched it, I was a little disappointed too. But I feel like I had assumed the film was going to be a certain way. Yeah. And when it wasn't, I was disappointed. Yeah. Number one, because Halloween made <laughs> it look like the most terrifying film that had ever been made. And number two, because the remake, as we we're about to discuss is a wild ride. Yeah. And this wasn't. It was slow. It was interesting, mm-hmm. but it wasn't as action-packed no. as I had expected. Going into it a second time, knowing that, and being able to look at, you know, exactly what's going on with that dialogue that was yeah. so disappointing the first time... Mm-hmm. Um, I had a newfound appreciation for it. Definitely. So that brings us to the masterpiece that is genuinely one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, Not to give away who's going to win here, but it's the first of John Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy, which would then be followed by Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. It is The Thing from 1982, directed by John Carpenter. Uh, his personal favourite of all his films. Uh, he is the master behind Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, Christine, Salt and Precinct 13, They Live, Prince of Darkness, and so many more. Um, And it's uh, written by Bill Lancaster, who only did, bizarre to me, The Bad News Bears and The Bad News Bears Go to Japan. Oh. That's it. Right. Unbelievable. Yeah. Literally wrote the greatest film ever made. One of the greatest films ever made. One of the greatest horror films. One of the greatest sci-fi films ever made. And he only did two Bad News Bears films. Crazy. It's quite random, actually. Yeah. 
Toby Hooper was originally slated to direct and co-write the film before John Carpenter was attached. Hooper's version would have been drastically different from Carpenter's version, featuring an alien that did not shapeshift or assimilate and following a character named the Captain who goes on an epic quest to find and kill the thing. The film would have served as its own film and as both a remake and sequel to the 1950- A requel? It would have been a requel to the 1951 film with little influence from the novel, uh, which Hooper openly found to be, in his words, boring. Hooper also wanted the film to be a horror comedy with slapstick humour. It was pitched as a swashbuckling action-adventure epic, a modern-day Moby Dick, set now set not in the ocean, but at the bottom of the world, Antarctica. Producers Drew Turner and Stuart Cohen were appalled by this pitch <laughs> and eventually fired him. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? No way. <laughs> With Cohen later saying, we avoided the disaster. It could have been one of the worst films ever made. That <laughs> sounds atrocious. <laughs> that genuinely sounds fucking awful. <laughs> now, I'm... With all due respect, not the biggest Toby Hooper fan. I think he's very inconsistent. Yeah. And that genuinely sounds like one of the biggest pieces of shit. <laughs> I'm so glad that wasn't made. Fucking what hell. could have been? What could have been? Um, it was made on a budget of $15 million. Right. It only made $19.6 million worldwide when it opened on the same day as Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Both had mm. unfavourable reactions by critics as well. Oh. And uh, they were both beaten by E.T., the extraterrestrial, yes. the biggest hit of that year. Uh, from the early 90s onward, though, The Thing and Blade Runner have become... Have being considered two of the greatest films ever made. Um, but from this failure, John Carpenter, uh, he takes all of his failures pretty hard. Um, the initial negative reception to this film disappointed him the most out of everything. Uh, not only was it a box office bomb, but obviously critics panned its gory effects, tone and characters. Yes, that's right. The critics panned the special effects. In this film, which quite possibly has the greatest practical effects you'll ever see in any film ever. Yeah. And I'm happy to say that and stand by it. Vincent Canby called it too phony looking to be disgusting. It qualifies only as an instant as instant junk. David Kerr wrote that it was hard to tell who's being attacked and hard to care. Likewise, Robert uh, Roger Ebert, of course, was disappointed by the superficial characterizations and implausible behavior, and dismissed the film as nothing more than an alien knockoff. Carpenter was particularly upset when Christian Nyby, the director of the original, publicly denounced Carpenter's version, saying, if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch. In response to the commercial bombing of the film, the studio canceled the multi-picture deal they had with Carpenter, who had who noted that his career would have been so much different if this film had been successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, not surprisingly, he was extremely relieved when it became a cult hit over the years. But that is wild. It's rare on this podcast that we talk about a man 
having his career absolutely destroyed partially, obviously, with John Carpenter soon found his way back um, because of a film. It's usually women. It is. It is. But there's no women in this film. So there's no, no women to in blame. this film. They have no women to blame. <laughs> um, yeah, no, this is... It's absolutely what I mean, and I'll say he, he found his feet again. I mean, when you think about it, the rest of the films really have been cult films. Yeah, when um, you... Um... When you look at it, is sort of, and we've seen every one of his films. We have, yeah. Um. So when you look at what came after the thing, it was yeah. Christine. Yeah. Yeah, which was uh, Columbia. Yeah, and then Starman. Yeah. Um. So I mean, uh, uh, those are big opportunities. So. Yeah, I suppose they are, but I think they've become more sort of culty kind yeah. of films. Really, yeah. I think. Um, and it's obviously a meme now, and the Martin McFly thing, you, you know, your kids are going to love it. We weren't ready for it. And I think it's, it's absolutely that. I don't think people were ready for this film. Mm. Um, now, watching it, it's, it's so difficult to believe this would ever be looked down upon. Like, that anyone think anything bad about this film. It's, it's wild. Like, this is objectively a masterpiece. It is. People, there are people out there who don't like gruesome films. Okay. Mm. And I, I appreciate that. I appreciate, you know, if you don't like incredibly gory films. Yeah. Then this, then sit this one out. Yeah. Um, But even at the time, you know, there was, there was a, you know, audience there for yeah. this film. Yeah. There was. And that's why I don't understand mm. it. I, I still think, you know, horror films... You know, this is only two years removed from A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Yeah. This is the beginnings of Halloween and slashers and stuff like that, which were over the top, mm. gory. Maybe this was a little too cold, pun fully intended. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for that sort of. I think even to this day, you don't expect sci fi films. To be this. Yeah. Great. And maybe it's the confusion. Maybe it's the sci-fi and the horror together. Yeah. yeah. That confused people. Maybe people were looking for a sci-fi film. And they what they found was a very gory mm-hmm. horror film. People looking for a horror saw a lot of yeah. science and, and such. Yeah. The sci-fi aspects. Maybe that's why. Um, In 1982, before its release, magazine had a contest, people were asked to draw the thing to see if anyone could guess what it was going to look like. And the winner would a trip to Universal Studios. Um, <laughs> isn't the point we don't really see what the... The, the thing is always... An... At the end? Yeah. At the end, the big version? Yeah. Potentially? Yeah. Um, of course, it had... It has one of the most iconic posters of all time. Uh, yeah. And uh, that poster, um, yeah, didn't go down so well. No. First. When it was revealed to John Carpenter after the disastrous previews, they felt it was a final nail in the coffin and were utterly crestfallen by it. It was presented as a take-it-or-leave-it option and John Carpenter felt after striving to get away from the man-in-the-suit horror trope um, their poster showed a man in a suit. 
John Carpenter thought it made the film look like a slasher film and commented they should have just painted a bloody knife in his hand. Um, okay, let's make something really clear. What Looking at the poster now, that's absolutely true. I mean, if they had, <laughs> if they'd put a machete in his hand, you'd be like, oh my God, it, it's Frost. Urban legend. <laughs> it's Frost, it's urban legend. It's Frosty Jason Voorhees. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. I love it, though. But it's I love it. I think it looks great. I think it looks fantastic. And a little bit more on what Siskel and Ebert had to say on it. They're actually split. So Ebert, of course, called it a bath bag film and said it was inferior to other earlier genre entries like Alien, while Siskel praised the atmosphere of fear and paranoia the film effectively generates and said that's what makes the film work, not the gruesome special effects. It was rare for Siskel to praise an intense thriller like this and for Ebert to slam it. Usually it was the other way around. It was in one of the reviews for the thing that one critic uh, actually deemed, neither of those two, one critic deemed John Carpenter a pornographer of violence. Ooh. And John Carpenter said, that really had me think about my career. Yeah, not Ghosts of Mars, exact quote, not Ghosts of Mars, being called a pornographer. Uh, it's giving Mary Cosby. <laughs> yeah, he called me a pornographer. <laughs> He called me a pornography. Um, he actually mentioned Ghost of Mars. He did. So he he also believes Ghost, of, terrible, Ghost yeah. of Mars is his by far his worst film. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's actually so abysmal and dull that I would never <laughs> do it on the podcast. Yeah. Okay. What does to say about it? Of course not. Just we're on, so we're on the same page. And um, with that being said, let's get to our second feature presentation. <laughs> Origin, Alien, Location, Antarctica, Age, Unknown, Intent, Survival, Destination, Man, John Carpenter's The Thing, The Ultimate in Alien Terror, Rated R, starts Friday at a theater near you, check newspapers for local listings. So a UFO flies past Earth and burns in space as the iconic title card appears. The same as the original and the same as the Mary Elizabeth Winston sequel that someone wasn't going to mention. What do you mean? When you uh, said the title card is the same as the remake and another film. Oh. Oh, um, a little secret about the... Antarctica, winter 1982. A Norwegian helicopter pursues a sled dog to an American research station that you last saw during the end credits of the 2011 prequel. Yes. (laughs) (sighs) This is the first of uh, John Carpenter's films, which he did not score himself. Of course, immediately you hear the iconic score um, by Ennio Morricone. And the film's original choice of composer was Jerry Goldsmith. Morricone took it on and composed. Yeah, he composed a very low key, carpenter like score filled with brooding, menacing bass chords. Morricone's score would be dubiously nominated for a Razzie Award for Worst Score in what is possibly the most baffling Razzie nomination. Probably joint first with Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Because. Slash Stanley Kubrick for The Shining. What the f? But, yeah, I mean, some some girls just don't get it, and if you don't well, get it, yeah. you're never gonna get it. 
Unused music composed for the film was later used by uh, Morricone in Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Ironically, the Thing score was nominated for a Razzie, but the score for Hateful Eight, used from stuff from this film, won him an Oscar. <laughs> um, but that's one of two noticeable things within the start of the film. Uh, the other thing being Jed the Sled Dog. Jed the Sled Dog. Yeah. Carpenter was so impressed with the work done by this good boy who is taken over by the thing. Uh, the real dog's name was Jed and the shot of him walking down the hallway later on and searching for a human was done in only about four or five takes. Hard, A true hard worker. Yeah. My second favourite dog in a film filled with snow. What's your first? Refer to the best film of the month later on. Uh, oh, I mean, that Oscar-worthy performance, yes, of course. American helicopter pilot RJ McCready is introduced drinking J&B whiskey whilst playing chess with Adrian Barbo's voice on a computer. He gets frustrated at losing, pours his whiskey into the computer and calls her a cheating bitch. Um, favourite Adrian Barbo voiceover work? Uh, Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. Oh, okay. That beautiful French. Yes. In a cast of 15, there's not one female character in the film aside from Adrian Barbeau's chest voice. Yes. Um, a scene <laughs> containing a female blow-up doll was filmed and then left on a cutting room floor. Right. Have some more representation there. Um, I don't have an issue with it. No. I, I genuinely don't. Because I actually think this is a film about masculinity. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm actually fine with that. Yeah, you know that. What I would like in nineteen eighty two is to have films about women that yeah. feature just women. Um, was that was that even nine to five or was that slightly earlier? But yeah, whatever. Yeah, you know. So I I'm perfectly fine with that. I think Twelve Angry Men. Twelve Angry yeah. Men is a fucking masterpiece, uh-huh. and there's there's no women in it. I, yeah. I get it. You know, we are allowed to tell those stories. Yeah, apparently there's one crew member was female. Uh, but she was pregnant and forced to leave the production and replaced by a male. Okay, that's a little annoying. So there's not yeah. a single woman involved. In yeah, this that's film. kind of that's kind of annoying. We could have had some women behind the scenes, even if you are talking about masculinity on the screen. Let's have some women behind the screen. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of annoying. In contrast, film's prequel, The Thing, twenty eleven, has Mary Elizabeth Winston in <laughs> yes. the leading role, and she's the best <laughs> thing about the film. <laughs> she is, she is. But that's not what the film's about. Um, yeah, we could have I'm done. I'm not even sure what the film's about. Well, we could have done with a Nicky Nicholson in this film. But do you do you think that? Do you do you actually think we could have done with a female voice? I I think every film needs a Nicky Nicholson. Uh, but no, I, I'll be completely honest with you. And you know, I stand women in films, and this is one of the rare occasions. This is Twelve Angry Men, of a film made by men about men that I fully love and adore, uh, and I think it's perfect the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, fully perfect. I don't mean a thing should. <laughs> I don't think a thing should be changed in the thing. Yeah, and that, that that's what I'm saying because of how the film works, I think it's perfectly fine. These stories are perfectly fine to tell. Yeah, um, we just need to have the other side. Yeah. Of, of things as well, you yeah. know, we need to have those opportunities. While discussing the character of McCready, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell discuss having McCready be a former Vietnam War helicopter pilot who was involved in some sort of tragedy and since felt disgraced by his service. 
Because of this, McCready suffers from PTSD, alcoholism, and severe insomnia. This backstory ultimately did not make it into the finished film, but it explains why McCready uh, was awake to hear the dogs whining and why he isn't phased by the grotesque violence. Yes. And it adds deeper context to the line, I'm a real light sleeper, Childs. Yeah. Yeah. And it's we say it all the time. I sound like a broken record, but every film is a product of its time. Yeah. So much horror directly after the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and during affected by yeah. it. You know, the original film, definitely talking about communism and the Red Scare and mm-hmm. the Cold War and, and all that business. Yeah. The casting of the role provided to be difficult. Many A-list actors met with Universal and read for the role, uh, but nearly everyone turned it down. Nick Nolte, the top choice, immediately rejected the offer. And the role was also turned down by Jeff Bridges, Tom Berenger, Christopher Walken, Scott Glenn, Roy Scheider... Chris Christopherson, Sam Shepard, Jack Thompson, Tom Atkins, Don Johnson, Bob, what's his name? And uh, no, I was, was going to... Oh, are you doing a Silla Black thing? <laughs> Bob Carroll, G's, Hank Marvin, <laughs> Anthea Turner. Um, but yeah, that's a lot of names to turn this down. Um, imagine Tom Atkins, that'd have been fucking amazing. That, I, I could picture that now. Screenwriter, um, he should have been in the Toby Hooper version. Yes, <laughs> that would. He should have been the captain. Yeah. Uh, screenwriter Bill Lancaster wrote the script with Harrison Ford or Clint Eastwood in mind for the lead, and they both received offers. Although some of uh, the aforementioned names showed interest, namely Christopherson, Shepard, and even Harrison Ford, uh, nearly everyone turned it down due to issues with scheduling, fil- filming in the extreme cold, and or appearing in a B movie. Producer Stuart Cohen recalls the only person who genuinely seemed enthusiastic about the role was then-newbie Fred Ward, but Universal passed on him because they wanted a bigger name. And Kurt Russell was hired as a last resort (gasps) effort on recommendation from Carpenter, as Universal was initially sceptical that he was too young and pretty to play the rugged and brawny McCready. However, with principal filming soon to begin uh, just a week away, with the B-roll already shooting, the studio helplessly hired Kurt Russell. Oh, no. And what a great decision it was. Not the incredibly talented and <laughs> actually really quite now way more famous than a lot of those names you've just reeled <laughs> off. Kurt Russell. Uh, the Amer- back to the film. The Americans witnessed the passenger accidentally blow up the helicopter and himself. <gasps> Pilot fires a rifle and shouts at the Americans, but they cannot understand him, and he is shot dead in self-defense by Station Commander Gary. Guess we'll never know what they were. Oh wait, wow. just wait till twenty. If you watched the twenty eleven prequel starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead, I know where the Norwegian guy speaks perfect English for about the majority of the film, I... but then suddenly doesn't isn't able to speak English at this point, which costs him his life. I, I didn't say it was a flawless. Nah. <laughs> of course not. McCready and Dr. Cooper leave to investigate the Norwegian base. Among the charred ruins and frozen corpses, they find the burnt corpse of a malformed humanoid with two faces joined together, which they transfer to the American station. This is the first point. What? Two-faced. <laughs> this is the first point in which we get to see the special effects. Mm-hmm. And the film is considered a benchmark in special effects makeup effects. Um, 
the effects were created by Rob Bottin, who was only 22 when he started the project. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, this is incredible levels of... It is. ...special effects work. It is. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, they're aliens, so it's, it's never going to look, you know, look humans. <laughs> they're aliens. But the scale of them. Yeah, this is genuine perfection. Yeah. And this is what? Is this before American Werewolf in London? A year after? A year before? I'm not sure. But around this time, around this you time. know, American Werewolf in London, oh. The Thing, you know, the work Toby, uh, Toby Savini? Tom Savini was doing is incredible. The last time I'll mention it, and... It's. I think it's a, a notable point of conversation at this point, um, talking about special effects. You look at this, and you look at the 2011, mm. where the studio insisted on using CGI. They took control, they told the director, you can't have your practical effects, we want CGI, that's going to get asses in seats. Um, bullshit. Absolutely bullshit. When you look at this, and you look at American Wealth in London, and you look at the burden, you look at... The Friday the 13th sequels, you look at Nightmare on Elm Street, you look at Pumpkinhead, all these films, Aliens, you know, you look at all these films from the 80s, and a lot of films in the 70s as well, where practical effects were seemingly their only option, with a bit of uh, cheap and cheesy CGI thrown in Mm -hmm. here and there. And then you think about how we moved on as a society, and within the film industry, where the expectations were all computer-generated stuff. Why the fuck would you want that instead of this? Yeah. Like, these films were made on miniature budgets. Compared to now, thanks to inflation, these films were made on rather small budgets. And look at what they created. Why would you not want that? And thankfully, we're at, a, we're at a point now where a lot more practical effects are being used in films. Mm. You know, you think this year we've got Thanksgiving, we've got Evil Dead Rise... And so on. You know, there's a few films this year, the last few years, where practical effects have been back in. But it's like, you know, like I said, again, the 2011 prequel, I don't know why a studio would think people would want to see cheap-looking CGI instead of stuff like this. It yeah. adds to the film. It's money-saving, isn't it? Yeah. Essentially. They would never say it, but it's more cost-effective mm. and less time-consuming yeah. to just get in some old CGI. Yeah. Rather than having to get a whole team in and, you know, film for a long mm-hmm. period around these things. They can get the filming out of the way and then just stick it in afterwards. Yeah. You know, and I, I, that's not me saying I'm totally against CGI. I think there's some wonderful films yeah, that have been built around CGI. I just don't think in horror it's necessary. It's definitely not necessary. When it comes to gore, when it comes mm. to what we love about horror, I think it takes away from yeah. these things. And it, I don't want to get too much into it, but it's kind of like the way AI now yeah. is taking away jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, one person gets the job of 10, you know, yeah. and uh, it's shoddy what, what yeah. ends up, what they end up with. Biologist Blair autopsies the remains and finds a normal set of human organs. Clark kennels the sled dog and it soon metamorphoses and absorbs several of the station dogs in a really, really disturbing scene. 
If you're a dog lover. Oh, this is the most uncomfortable scene for me. Because the poor dogs look so... Like, one of them's getting sprayed with this shit. Yeah. This gloop. And it looks so scared. I'm like, oh my god. You know, and, and I, I'm about to see people having limbs ripped off. <laughs> here, there, and everywhere. Mm-hmm. But this, to me, is the one that really sort of turned my stomach. I was like, oh, poor yeah. thing. Um, absolutely terrifying scene mm. and it, the disturbance alerts the team and Charge uses a flamethrower to incinerate the creature Blair autopsies the dog thing and summarizes <laughs> dog <that> thing <laughs> it's an organism that can perfectly imitate other life forms big jump from the man in a suit in mm-hmm. 1951 yes Data recovered from the Norwegian base leads the Americans to a large uh, excavation site containing a partially buried alien spacecraft, which Norris uh, estimates has been buried for over 100,000 years at a smaller human-sized dig site. Blair grows paranoid after running a computer simulation that indicates the creature could assimilate all life on Earth in a matter of years. So the stakes are also a lot higher here as well. Um. Yeah, no, that's true, yes. The group implements controls to reduce the risk of uh, assimilation. The remains of the malformed humanoid assimilate in an isolated Benin's. The windows interrupts the process and McCready burns the Benin's thing. Um, another iconic yeah. image. Um, his mouth is very wide. Uh-huh. And every... Sounds like a porn Holly film. Jervis. Oh, yeah. And everyone sort of circled around. Uh-huh. <laughs> it got the clothes on. It's fine. Um, he makes this noise, mm-hmm. and it, find the note, girl. <laughs> find the note. Uh, I don't know if he's going for a Phantom of the Opera, <laughs> but it don't sound good. Um. Okay. The team also imprisons Blair. Did you not think? Thank you, honest vocal coach. <laughs> Team also imprisons Blair in a tool shed after he sabotages all the vehicles, kills the remaining sled dogs, no. and destroys the radio to prevent escape. Do you know who's kind of scary in this film? Blair. Wilford Brimley. Yeah. I, f- I feel like, I haven't seen him in enough, but I feel like Wilford Brimley would have made a fantastic um, bad guy uh-huh. in like a James Bond film. Yeah. Or I-, I actually think he's plays on the edge mm-hmm. really quite well. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've seen anything else that he's been in. Wilford Brimley. Mm. I mean, he's got a fantastic name. Oh, yes, of course. Oh, duh. Ewoks, The Battle of Endor. Oh, of course. And previous star of the podcast. Ten to Midnight, previous yeah. star of the podcast. But yeah, I, I feel like he would have made a, a fantastic bad guy. And he probably did play a lot of bad guys. Uh, Cooper suggests testing for infection by comparing the crew's blood against uncontaminated blood held in storage. But after learning the blood stores have been destroyed, the men lose faith in Gary's leadership and McCready takes command. Now, part of the fear underlying uh, the story was the rising fear of AIDS, then making itself known. The idea that you couldn't tell who was infected just by looking at them, only blood tests would reveal it, was not lost on the writers. Cleverly, on the wall of the outpost's rec room, 
where the infamous blood test scene occurs, hangs a World War II era poster warning of the dangers of sexually transmitted diseases, showing a cartoon of an exaggeratedly promiscuous woman holding a tag marked I have VD. The poster bears the title, They Aren't Labelled Chum. Sorry. They Aren't Labelled Chum. <laughs> Uh, encapsulating the idea of the plot that dangers can be as destructive as they are hidden. Really effective uh, social commentary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the idea that McCready is the one chosen or the one that's eventually put into the leadership role yeah. says a lot about ideas of masculinity within yeah. the film. He is kind of that masculine, non-emotional figure mm-hmm. that um they believe makes a good leader the idea is that gary's too emotional mm-hmm. uh and then forgive me i can't remember his name the other one is chosen because they think he's level-headed but he said no i, I can't emotionally deal with being mm-hmm. a leader yeah whereas mccready is very cool calm collected given dirty harry energy mm-hmm. you know i can see why someone like clint eastwood would have been great for the role yeah um and they're kind of seen as very masculine traits, yeah. whereas women are seen as way more emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing his backstory now and that his sort of cool, calm, collected state is because of trauma mm. within his time during the Vietnam War, it puts another spin on what we see as masculine traits. Yeah. Well, masculine traits could also be PTSD. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. It's nice to know that it, it's nice to know that it has so many layers because, I mean, I've never really and funny enough, and in, in the scene like this, you'd think it'd be obvious, but I've never really thought of it like this until mm. watching it for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it makes so much sense, and it works. It's the right film for this. It definitely it, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, he windows and Knowles find futures. Foot. How do you pronounce his name? Fuchs's excuse me burnt corpse oh, he's dead now anyway burnt corpse and, <laughs> you don't have to say it and again and he committed suicide to avoid assimilation Windows returns to base whilst McCready and Knowles uh, investigate McCready's shack during their return Knowles abandons McCready in a slow storm snowstorm you mean um, believing he has been assimilated after finding his torn clothes in the shack hmm Hmm. What? Finding men's torn clothes yes. in other men's shacks. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I don't think they think he's the thing. I think he thinks he's gay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, a queer. The, Not a thing, a queer. <laughs> the team debates whether to allow McCready inside, but he breaks in and holds the group at bay with dynamite. Uh, during the encounter, Norris appears to suffer a heart attack. In one of the greatest scenes ever put to film, and a scene that would have that did blow my mind when I first watched it, and I'm sure would have blown my mind even more if I watched it in the 80s when it was released. Uh-huh. As Cooper attempts to defibrillate Norris, his chest transforms into a large mouth. His arms go through his chest... And his arms are bitten off by Norris's chest, killing him immediately. Cooper's head, um, Copper's head, Cooper's head, Copper. I've been saying Cooper this whole time. I swear. Uh, is lifted out of Norris's <laughs> chest, 
whilst Norris's head begins to stretch off of his body. McCready incinerates the Norris thing, but its head detaches. We get the iconic line, you've got to be fucking kidding. <laughs> and they and it attempts to escape before also being burnt. Honestly, just a work genius. Yeah, um, what's so genius about this scene is that you know something's going to happen. Yeah. Because McCready is ready to blow the place up. Yeah. He's like, you ain't getting me. You know, if mm-hmm. if you're going to kill me, and they're more than willing to kill him. Yeah. Thinking, you know, before they even know for a fact mm-hmm. if he is or isn't, they're ready to kill him. And he has to threaten their lives yeah. to save himself. And whilst that's going on in the corner, we have the defibrillator. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of like, well, what's going to go? What's Is it going to blow? What's going to happen? Um, is this dude going to die? What we don't expect is his chest to yeah. open and bite off someone's arms. Yeah. And it is a perfect jump scare. That's the thing I was going to say. It, it is a jump scare. Yeah. It, you know, it's something you don't see coming. Like the uh, chest burster in Alien. You don't see this coming. Because why would you? Yeah. Why would you? Even with everything that's gone on by this point, why would you expect this guy that they're trying to bring back to life for his chest to open up and become a fucking mouth? Yeah. You know, yeah. and that is an effective jump scare. Yeah, because the, the there are two different sort of pillars of tension being built within the scene, and you know one of them's going to explode. Yeah, but you kind of in your head you expect whatever. You don't expect Kurt Russell gonna is gonna die this early mm-hmm. into the film. His name's on the poster, so you expect something's gonna happen, but not that. No. You know, completely out of nowhere. Um, McCready. Uh, hypothesizes that the Norris thing demonstrated that every part of the thing is an individual life form with its own survival instincts. Um, I mean, also, I'm sure it goes without saying, but the practical effects in this scene, this is it. This is the peak. Mm-hmm. Like, this is... I don't think anything has ever been made to look as good as this as a sci-fi film pra- with practical effects. Uh-huh. Like, this is top tier. Yeah. Like the detail put into the head coming out of the body and just yeah, and that's that's another iconic image. Yeah, um, really unflattering for that poor actor. <laughs> like if that's what I, I'm assuming it's not his IMDb picture, <laughs> but if that's his lasting image on screen, uh-huh. I do apologize. I do feel sorry for him. <laughs> I don't want to sound harsh, but it's very very unflattering <laughs> because it's very clearly his face as well. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's why it's so well done. Because it it does sort of capture his image yeah. and his appearance. and But yeah, it's a really deformed creature hanging off the ceiling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, McCready proposes testing blood samples from each survivor with a heated piece of wire and has each man restrained, but is forced to kill Clark after he lunges at him with a scalpel. Yeah, um, we're fully into paranoia. Yeah. Uh, we're fully into mistrust, mistrust of authority. Mm-hmm. We're into um, what the internet, sadly, would call alpha, beta, or whatever, males, sort of territory yeah. here. Who's going to step up? I'm going to have to, if I have to kill you off to survive, mm-hmm. if, you know, I will be the last one living yeah. sort of territory. 
Uh, everyone passes the test except Palmer, whose blood recoils from the heat. Exposed, the Palmer thing transforms, breaks free of its bonds, and infects Windows by splitting his head open and forces Windows' head into his own head, forcing <laughs> McCready to incinerate them both. I don't get it right. This is a little camp. <laughs> Ow. Yeah. Do you not know think? When he's like, he's got like, he looks like a Venus fly trap. It uh-huh. looks like something from Little Shop of Horrors. And the guy, he's heads in, but his legs are like flopping <laughs> through the air and going, going wild in the aisles. It's a little camp. <laughs> Childs is left on guard whilst the others go to test Blair, but they find that he has escaped. And I mean, he's had a lot of time on his hands because he's been using vehicle components. To assemble a small flying saucer, nice. which they destroy. Oh. All that hard work for nothing. All that for nothing. Uh, upon their return, Charles is missing and the power generator is destroyed, leaving the men without heat. McCready speculates that with no escape left, the thing intends to return to hibernation until a rescue team arrives. McCready, Gary and Knowles agree that the thing could not be allowed to escape and set explosives to destroy the station, but the Blair thing... Kills Gary by stretching his face with his hands. Mm. And Knowles disappears. But the stretching face and hands, that is a disturbing image. It is, but also kind of satisfying. <laughs> when, like, the fingers go into the skin. Yeah. Is that weird? It's a bit weird. A bit weird. Um, but, yeah, it, lo- it looks disgusting. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, Blair is just straight-faced, not a single expression there. And uh, he transforms into an enormous creature with a dog coming out of the middle of him and breaks the detonator. But McCready triggers the explosives with a stick of dynamite, destroying the station and saying, yeah, well, fuck you too. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> While McCready... <laughs> yeah, fuck you too. While McCready uh, sits by the burning remnants, Childs returns, claiming he got lost in a storm whilst pursuing Blair. Mm. Exhausted and slowly freezing to death, they acknowledge the futility of their distrust and share a bottle of Scotch whiskey. And uh, McCready says, why don't we just wait here for a little while, see what happens. Now, that ending has a lot of people talking. Mm. Even to this day. Yeah. Studio executive Ned Tannen gave Carpenter permission to use the ambiguous ending. But only if the audience was given an extra sign that the monster was killed in the explosion. And so an additional monster scream was added over the wide shot of the camp exploding. Mm. Multiple alternative endings were filmed with even more endings planned and considered some capacity. One ending cuts sometime later when McCready has been rescued civilization and passes a blood test for a mysterious government agent who somehow knows what the thing is. The ending was filmed solely as a precaution and was never used, even for test screenings. As Carpenter wanted a more upbeat conclusion in case the studio rejected the film's pessimistic ending. Another filmed ending showed a Malamute, presumably the thing, surviving the explosion, and stopping to take one final look at the burning camp before running off into the snow. A third ending simply showed Childs getting up and walking away into the snowstorm, leaving McCready to perish alone. Again, the ending was never used. Some purpose endings that went unfilmed included a chromatic show- showdown between McCready and Childs, 
The rescue chopper arriving just in time to save them and the two men committing suicide with one final stick of dynamite. So, many people have theorised about the film's ambiguous ending uh, with people debating over whether Childs is a thing or not. The most popular piece of evidence is the bottle of scotch McCready hands Childs at the end. McCready has been throwing Molotov cocktails throughout the camp earlier and it's said that this bottle is filled with gasoline as well. The Thing, not knowing what alcohol tastes like, drinks it whilst Childs would have spat it out. Going further, the music swells as Childs drinks, the music having been an indicator of The Thing's presence throughout the rest of the film. Exhausted and having already accepted his fate, McCready watches the camp burn and able to fight. Detractors of this theory point out the 2011 prequel, which says that the thing cannot recreate inorganic materials. And the fact Charles still has his earring in at the end of the film. Yeah. John Carpenter has acknowledged this theory, with most saying that he does not believe either of them are a thing at the end of the film. Though some have said he's reported otherwise. Whichever side you choose to believe is pretty bleak ending either way. Uh, and there were plans to film a direct sequel with John Carpenter to direct and with Kurt Russell reprising his role. Uh, announced for a release in 1999, the project didn't progress past the early script stages and instead a sequel video game called The Thing 2002 was released three years later. Uh, um, so we got Escape from LA, but we couldn't get The yeah. Thing 2. What's your thoughts on the ending? I don't have any in terms of who I think is a thing and who isn't the thing or a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the ending, though. I think yeah. I think we are allowed to have very cold endings. Yeah. To, it, uh, no pun intended. I, I, you know, it's a very cold film uh-huh. <laughs> in many respects. Um, but I think we are allowed to have ambiguous yeah. endings. And if it gets a conversation going, mm-hmm. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I would assume I would agree with whatever John Carpenter says. Yeah. And just be with it like that. If it was a sequel planned, I know I definitely know for certain that Kurt Russell isn't the thing. Oh well, yeah. At the yeah. end, McCready. Um, but yeah, that is the thing, and uh, we've reached it on this podcast. I'm gonna say it. The greatest remake ever made. Um, yes. Because number one, The Thing from Another World, was a film that needed a remake. Yes. Yeah. And number two, it betters the first film mm-hmm. in every single way. Yeah. Apart from female representation. But... Well, yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, a flawless film for me. And there's never been... There's been remakes that maybe come a bit close to uh, on remake level being as good, you know, Suspiria, but um, yeah, I don't think another remake will ever beat this. Yeah, it's it's kind of what remakes are for, and I said that the original is a film that needed a remake, mm-hmm. and it's true because the original was a film that was good for its time, yeah. had a great story, had some great. Um, sort of themes to it but was maybe a little stuffy mm-hmm. and within the 30 years lots of things had developed further and you could go back to the original source 
and do that more justice than they could in the 1950s. So it's a perfect example of a remake that, you know, that was needed yeah. to do justice to the original material. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't think of another remake like that. And there probably is. I'm sure someone will be able to tell me. Yeah, Hills of Eyes. Yeah, to, yeah, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, this is better than the Hills of Eyes. Well, let's get to the awards. We have Cinematography, Scares, Kills, and Soundtrack. Uh, in 1951, I really like the cinematography. It has that classic monster movie feel to it. And I think, you know, having it in the snowy setting, it looks fantastic. Yeah, because the snow doesn't look like shit. No. It doesn't look fakey. It doesn't, you know, the the, um, <laughs> the setting isn't shaking. Mm. Uh, it doesn't look fake. No. It doesn't look fakey. It doesn't look silly. Um... And I appreciate that. Yeah. For for the time as well. And I know we'll keep saying that, but for the time it looks great. And it, mm-hmm. but it does look great. And there's some absolutely beautiful shots. Really yeah. fantastic shots. The shot of them around you know, the the saucer. Yeah. That scene um, of him in the doorway. Oh, it looks beautiful. Yeah. And that's one of the best scares in the film. The mm-hmm. scares mostly and the curls come from the dialogue. He was yeah. describing what's happened. And that's effective, but we don't get to see a single kill in this film apart from the monster himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, the score has that classic monster movie feeling to it as well, which is really charming. Um, but let's be real. The remake, that Razzie-nominated score is yes. one of the best. It's, it's fantastic, and it does exactly what it needs to do. It's very minimalistic. Yeah. It's very representative of what we're seeing on screen. It matches perfectly Mm -hmm. to the isolation that we're seeing, to the coldness that we're seeing, the weather, to the relationships between... And it's something I didn't really touch on, but the relationships between the characters as well. You know, they ain't friends. No. They're not having as many funny quips no. as the original. And I think the score perfectly shows mm-hmm. that. And it's really, and it sounds weird to say that, but a, a really spot on score can add so much to a film mm-hmm. in terms of themes and characters and their relationship and the setting and the visuals. Yes, no, I agree. And the cinematography really gives us a sense of isolation mm-hmm. and, it's just such a well-shot film where nothing's left to the imagination and it doesn't cut away. You see you get, you get, see everything in yeah. this film and it looks incredible while you're seeing everything. It's really creepy. Uh, and yet the kills are just... If you'd call them kills, you know, they transform into the thing. Um, just incredible. Yeah, yeah. Just absolutely incredible. It's a really fantastic juxtaposition between the minimalism of their setting mm-hmm. and what's going on outside. Yeah. And then what's happening inside is so over the top. Yeah. Like Gary said, the camera never cuts away. Mm-hmm. We don't miss a single second of this extreme gore and mm-hmm. this, you know, extreme violence mm-hmm. in, in, at play. And I love a snowy film. I think... Yeah. I think snow 
more than any other kind of weather it looks beautiful on yeah. screen I, I you know many many beautiful snowy films um and this is one of them this is really high up on there because i think it looks beautiful at times yeah. too it definitely i think it's it's a film that set the more is more standard for remakes um but this did it in the right way a lot of films have misunderstood it but this does it in the right way yeah it but it, it's allowing things to happen that weren't couldn't happen in the yeah. 1950s it's allowing those to happen and being a little broader, but it's not, none of it is unnecessary. Like we say, you know, when remakes try too hard, it's when it's unnecessary backstory, mm-hmm. it's unnecessary, you know, dialogue or, or stuff like that. It doesn't fit the purpose. Mm. Whereas with this, it's still a flying saucers come to earth. We still have that. It's not forcing anything, mm-hmm. but allowing the special effects that have developed over the last 30 years to help tell the story. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, with that being said, I, I just want to give it all to the remake. It's true. It's true. And it, it's, I hope it's not going to sound like a disservice to the original, but yeah, the remake does yeah, win <laughs> in those categories. Get into the characters, and although they're films that both have a fair few characters in them, um, we haven't got many for comparisons because it's kind of hard to match them up. Mm. Um, the easy one was Captain Patrick Hendry and RJ McCready. 1951, he's played by Kenneth Toby, and in 1982, played by Kurt Russell. Uh, and I think Kenneth Toby does a, a good job, he's a good leader man. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's probably more akin to like an Indiana Jones type. Yeah, like uh, an adventurous man. <laughs> r- yeah, womanizer. Well, not a womanizer, but you know what I mean. Rom- yeah. Romantically inclined, and uh, good old American fellows saving us from the communists. Oh, yeah. Whereas Kurt Russell is perfectly moody and just oozes charisma throughout the whole thing. Just mm-hmm. he's so iconic in this role. It's the perfect kind of um, minimalist kind of role. And I keep saying minimalist, and I'm going to continue to mm-hmm. say that. Where he doesn't actually have to massively act. No. Like, he has his moments, but he's not, like, balls to the wall, hamming it up. Because he doesn't have to. No. He's playing a very low-key character. And Kurt Russell is so good at that. He is, yeah. I mean, you look at him in Escape from New York, same sort of thing. It's just, it's something he's good. He's yeah. great at, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's it's an easy win for Kurt Russell. Yes, yes. Um, and then I paired up Dr. Arthur Carrington, played by Robert Cornthwaite in 1951, with Dr. Blair, uh, played by Wilford Brimley in 1982. I did find um, Robert Cornthwaite's weird obsession with plants amusing. Yeah. I must say. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much his character. Yeah, yeah. I liked, liked Plants a lot. I, I liked Wilfred Brimley's acting more. Yeah. But I actually think as a character, maybe um, Carrington in the original was a little more interesting. If mm. we're doing a direct comparison yeah. between the two, I thought maybe his character was a little more interesting because it gives us a different view mm-hmm. of the events taking place. Yeah. Whereas Rufford Brimley is just scarier. 
I think he's I think he's incredibly creepy. Yeah. I actually genuinely do. And he again not hamming it up. Mm-hmm. But well, I mean, he does go wild in the aisles at one point. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I know th- he absolutely hams that breakdown scene. Yeah. But it's surrounding that. It's still quite creepy. Yeah. Yeah. When he's saying he doesn't know who to trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're thinking, yeah, bitch, you're the one we yeah. don't need to trust. Look how creepy you are. Yeah. I think it's Wilfred Brimley for me. Yeah, it is Wilford Brimley, because that performance is, is really, really good. Yeah. And finally, uh, I put Scotty and Childs together. So Scotty in 1951, played by Douglas Spencer. And 1982, Childs is played by Keith David. I think Douglas Spencer has more to do and more to say. Yeah. Um, But Keith David's Keith David. and Effortlessly he, cool. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's just really fucking good. Keith David... Could have played McCready. Yeah. Because I think it, there's a very similar energy uh-huh. between the two. And I don't, I think it's no coincidence that they're the ones to survive yeah. till the end. Even though they were quite antagonistic against each mm-hmm. other, I think their similarities are why they sort of don't mesh very well. Yeah. Um, but by the end, they do. You know, well, they, they kind of have to. Circumstances mean that they have to. Yeah, whereas Douglas Spencer, he's a journalist, ladies and gentlemen. But that's it. That's all we know. That is all. I mean, he's, yeah, I, it, it's a difficult one because there are two characters doing two very different yeah. things. But they are kind of the maybe the third wheel when it comes to science and military and, mm-hmm. and reporter, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I'd give it to Keith Day because... Yeah. Um, in that case, we're down to our final awards. <laughs> yeah. And first up, we have Biggest Queen. I mean, easily goes to Nikki Nicholson. Who yeah. keeps calm and cracks jokes no matter how serious things get. And she saves the day. She's the only real female character of substance. Because mm-hmm. we're certainly not going to give it to the chess computer. No. Uh, but still a very worthy winner. Yeah. I think it'd be a disservice to say she, she uh-huh. won by default. Yeah. She's very worthy. Biggest gasp, uh, I got Cooper Norris in the chest mouth. Yes, I would have said that if I hadn't really known it before going yeah. into the film. For me, first time going and watching the film start to finish with the remake, yeah. um, it's the dogs. Yeah, I, w- I wasn't aware of, you know, that scene with the dog. Mm-hmm. It made me very uncomfortable. Best dialogue, I've got the iconic, you've got to be fucking kidding. Yeah, I love that one. Um, I did, I did feel bad for the original. So I said, biggest story to hit this planet and I run into this human clown. <laughs> That's camp. I got Nicky Nicholson pouring drinks into Henry's mouth whilst he's tied up. Nicky's kinky side coming out. Definitely. Yeah. Nastiest moment, a category specifically for Nasty November. And I've gone something you've already given award to and gone with Dog Thing and the other dogs. Uh, I will go with something you've already given an award to and that's the chest arm disfigurement scene. And uh, with that being said, I think we have a winner. I think we do. And with 10 games of chess with that cheating bitch Adrian Barbeau out of 10 and your rating is? (laughs) 10 fiery X-Factor auditions out of 10. Shut up Find the note girl Find the note The winner is The Thing 1982 The greatest remake ever made Of course it's the winner 
You all knew what you were getting for when you started the episode. But I give the original 1951. Originally, it was a six. I Ooh. This time, I give it eight tied up drinks with Nikki out of ten. Well, I originally gave it six, but this time I give it seven holy cats out of ten. And if you want to watch the original, it's on DVD, Blu-ray, Video On Demand, and BBC iPlayer in the UK currently. And the 1982 film is on DVD, Blu-ray, 4K, and Video On Demand. If you enjoy the original, I recommend checking out the original Fly. Oh, nice, nice. Um, I went a little different this time round. So I said, if you enjoyed both of these films, you should watch Day of the Dead. Yeah. Because it actually feels... Like, it incorporates so much uh-huh. from both of these films. High gore, but also the military slash scientist yeah. antagonism. Uh, if you enjoyed the remake, then I recommend watching The Faculty. Oh, nice. Where instead of blood tests, they shove pens up the nose. That's true. Very good. Um, but yeah, The Vin 1982 is flawless, and there's really nothing more I can say about it. It's a perfect film, and if you haven't seen it already, then I envy you getting to watch it for the first time. Well, I would say... Watch both. Oh, yeah, watch both, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, so, that brings us to our best and worst new releases of the month. Ooh. So, the best of the month, there's a few that it could have been, actually. Um, this has been a strong month, and we're saying this with another week to go before the month finishes. And uh, a bunch more films we still need to watch. But, as of this point, as of 23rd of November... 2023 at 7.55 my best of the month is Anatomy of a Fall I completely agree a thoroughly gripping thriller in the snow and a film the first my first favourite film of a dog acting in snow where the dog actually deserves an Oscar like it's unbelievable yeah uh, I'm not going to give away too much but the dog is a superb actor Um, I loved the themes. Yeah. I loved the acting. Oh mm-hmm. my god. Um, a film that asks, well, that leads to more questions maybe than it actually answers, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, yeah, really beautifully made and acted. And yeah, I highly recommend. Yeah. And the worst of the month, we're going to tell you what it is, but we're not going to talk about it. It's best Christmas ever. And we're not going to talk about it because this is going to be this year's Christmas bonus episode. So Um, tune into that. Yeah, so lips are sealed. Yeah, tune into that and find out why it is the worst film we've watched. (laughs) This, maybe this whole year, who knows? knows? (laughs) Um, Honourable mentions, which includes older releases as well. Well, first off is a new release, Killers of the Flower Moon. Well worth the three and a half hours. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, really well made, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've heard everybody talk sure, about how yeah. good it is. Uh, Pressure, which is the first British film, uh, first, first British film to be made by a black director, and it was fantastic. Yeah, really groundbreaking stuff. That particularly for British filmmaking, a really interesting story. How to Have Sex, a phenomenal new uh, indie British film from Molly Manning Walker, which everyone needs to go out and support immediately. Yeah, highly, highly recommend that film. Uh, the Royal Hotel, which I 
I really enjoyed it. There's things that could have been better in it, but it's intense at times. Yeah, it was all right. It was all yeah. right. Um, the Mystic and Freaks, some Todd Brannan. Browning, should I say? We watched it, yeah. Todd <laughs> Branning. Branning. Max Branning. <laughs> Todd Browning. Todd Browning. Yeah, two great films there from Todd Browning. Yeah, we put, well, three, actually. Well, we watched the other one earlier. Oh, we? did we? Yeah. Ooh. Oh, shit, yeah. End of October, Bottoms. Bottoms. Bottoms deserves a mention, yes. Another one that was up there for best of the month. Yeah, The Unknown. I don't know if we... No. We watched that after we recorded. We watched it after. Yeah. I believe okay. so. Then three Todd Browning films. Yes, Bottoms is amazing. Yes. Um, I'm not sure how many cinemas it's still in, but if you get a chance to see it, go and watch it. Yes, but um, Todd Browning, highly recommend the Criterion yes, release that definitely. came out um, last month. Um, I finally watched the Wallace and Gromit shorts, which was as amazing as I was expecting it to be. Uh, a Matter of Life and Death. Not the matter of life and death, but we did watch that as well. But a matter of life and death, the Paul and Pressburger film, my favorite Paul and Pressburger film. Um, mine too. Oh no, but well, we still got more to next go. month. Yeah, that I'll might see, change actually. Um, the Marvels, another film that again, if you get a chance to go see us in the cinema and support it, we should be supporting black female filmmakers who make fun films, fun throwaway action films. Should be supported. It was a fun time had by all. Yeah. Dream scenario. Amazing. Very funny. Very yeah. funny. Yeah. Um, very creepy as well at times. Mm. Totally killer. My exact sort of slasher. So much fun. Uh, the shark exploitation documentary on Shudder. Sick. The Kevin Williamson slasher that we finally got in the UK. Yeah, after all this time. Yeah. Nimona, a new animated uh, film on Netflix, which is fantastic. The Wes Anderson shorts on Netflix. They were a lot of fun. They were great. The Roald Dahl based, um, the ones based on Roald Dahl's work. Yeah, really yeah. fantastic. No One Will Save You was fine. Uh, Thanksgiving, the new Ella Ruff film that I can't believe I'm saying is actually a brilliant film. I know. Like, seriously incredible. Um, Gold Diggers of 1933, a really fun musical. Um, the best of the musicals I've watched this month. That Chris put on. Yeah, so you can tell what we're doing here is that we're trying to catch up on some light-hearted, festive fun yeah. in the lead-up to Christmas, but then also trying to catch up on films that we may have missed throughout yes. 2023. Well, and, and also, yeah, films that I've missed in general. Um, yeah. Goodfellas. I watched the first yeah. time. Yeah. First yes. time, um, which has a brief Christmas season, maybe at this point, is what we're saying. 42nd Street was great. Uh, I watched Feud. That, yeah, we'll mention it, fuck it. That yeah, was of course. Amazing as yeah, well. we did. Um, former podcast episode when we did Original versus Remake. Yeah, whatever. Whatever Baby happened Jane. to Baby Jane, yeah. you know. Feud was fantastic. Cannot wait for the new one. And finally, um, Silla Black's Christmas shut Eve. Shut the fuck You need to shut your mouth. Silla Black's Christmas Eve was a highlight, and I'll never forget that experience. Uh, and I'll be re-watching it every Christmas Eve. Um, you have any that I haven't mentioned? 42nd Street. I did mention that. Did you? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. that is a highlight. Fabulous. Yeah, I'm trying to get through a lot of... For me, I'm trying to get through a lot of the um, musicals that mm-hmm. I've missed. And I'm going from the beginning. So, uh, um, what's the name? Berkeley, and then 
moving on. What's his name? Through the collection. <laughs> Busby. Busby Berkeley. Fair. Yes. Uh, tell us what you've watched this month. We're Horrorcore Trash over on Facebook and Instagram. Horrorcore Trash on Twitter. We're also on TikTok. I'm Delek Gaz92 on Letterboxd. Gazmo205 on Instagram. And GazCruise92 on Twitter. I'm Chris Barker823 on Instagram and Letterboxd. And we're also Gasp Horror Festival across all social media. Go check that out. See what it's all about. Uh, give us a rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Like, follow, and everything else. Next month's original versus remake will be the final one of the year, and we have a New Year's Eve film. One of them is a New Year's Eve film. Yeah. The other one is John Carpenter returning hey. to the podcast original versus remake again. That's right. We will be discussing both versions of Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Kim I- is back. <laughs> the Kim's book. Kim Richards has never had a film on the podcast. No. And First it might time. be the beginning of many Kim Richards well, films, but yes, John Carpenter and one of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, yeah. second best film that features both of them. Uh, yeah, from the 70s. <laughs> from the 70s. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And on Tuesday, we are concluding Nasty November, and we couldn't do that without returning guest Ben Simpson, the master of all video nasties. Yeah, yeah, really excited for that. What we're talking about? We are talking about Norman J. Warren's Terror. Yeah, so if you remember um, the last time Ben was on. Prey. It was Prey. Yeah. Another Norman J. Warren yeah. film. Um, so really looking forward to that. Yeah. So we'll be back same time, same place on Tuesday. Bye. Bye.